The following message is from the 2019 IBCD pre-conference with Scott Mell. Essentials. We are delighted to have all of you here. Very thankful to God for those who've worked so hard for the conference. It's my privilege to introduce Dr. Scott Mell. He has a doctor of ministry from Southern Seminary in biblical counseling. And Scott is really kind of a key leader in the next generation of biblical counselors. You can tell he's in the next generation because he dresses in a much more hip way than I do. He's not even wearing socks, so that must be <laughs> what's hip. His shirt is not tucked in. I would have never been allowed to do that when I was his age, but that's another matter. Uh, Scott is a very gifted teacher. Uh, I've already gone through the material twice, actually, that he's teaching here and endorsed his upcoming book, and it is, as Anne-Marie said, kind of counseling essentials to be able to take counseling into the church where people who may even be intimidated by the word counseling would understand that we all have this responsibility to care for each other, to speak the truth in love. Now, Scott is involved in doing uh, training for ACBC throughout the country. He's done international work, training in biblical counseling through IABC, and uh, his only regret is his book is not yet out. That you, Next year you can buy his book in the bookstore, and today you get to hear his book as he speaks. So please come, Scott. Thanks, Jim. For the record, I'm just wearing short socks. <laughs> in case you were concerned, and we're going to write off everything I said as someone who would choose to not wear socks. But, I mean, no, it's, it's so good to be uh, with you all this morning, and, and I'm, I'm so, so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that we get to, to dive into God's word together and, and really to, to look at God's desire for, um, for his church and therefore for us. Life's, life's messy. Right? Or, or is it just me? <laughs> right? I mean, I, mean I, I imagine if, if you just look back, you, all you have to do is look back in the last week, right? And you're probably like, you know what? Life, so some of you are like, I'm just looking back at this morning. And I realize that, that, that life is messy. I mean, you think about the other people around you. It's not only your life, it's, it's lives of, of all the different people around you. I mean, I think of, um, there, there's people in my life who are, who are working longer hours than they should, and it's making things difficult. There's, there's, I have friends who are, have, have kids who've been in the hospital. I have friends who are dealing with cancer. I have friends who are, who are in the throes of, of addiction, trying to figure out what to do. I have um, friends, who, um, friends who are trying to figure out how to, to, to navigate the, the foster system and do what's best for the foster children that are in their home. I have, I have friends who um, are... are just overcome by, by anger at times they don't even know how to control it. And I think it's not just that I have all these messed up friends. I, I'm, I'm assuming that if you took any time to, to, to survey not only your life but the lives around you, you would see that, that life's really messy. And it's hard and people are struggling and they're hurting and, and it can leave us wondering what how is God going to deal with all of this? Well, the reality is, when we think about 
how God has provided for dealing with the mess in his life. There's all sorts of, he's actually dealt with it in a beautiful combination of means. First of all, Jesus has done etern, dealt eternally with the mess by sending his son. Right? Jesus Christ came to the earth, died on our behalf, rose again so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled to him, even in the midst of this fallen world, even in the, with, the, with this mess of fallen hearts. And, and, and not only that, but he, he's redeemed and he's redeeming our entire world. He's given a, a, us hope in what otherwise is a completely hopeless situation, right? In the midst of the world in which we live, without Christ, we're in a hopeless situation. But it's, but it's not just that he's dealt eternally with this in Christ. He's also sent an ongoing provision in the midst of our mess through his spirit. He didn't just come and die and then go and leave us alone and say, well, make your own way in the mess and, and, you know, someday I'll come back and take you out. No, in the midst of the mess, he's given us the gift of his spirit. He's given us the promise that he, that God himself, will be with us and dwell with us and empower us and remind us. We're going to talk some more about that. And he's also given us sufficient truth in his word. He's given us everything we need. Second Peter 1.3, right? It's a, a famous, well-known passage. But I think it's important to not just quote and, and think about, but to, but to look at. And I actually, I can't talk and look up scripture at the same time. Can you? I don't know. And I didn't put it in my, uh, in my notes. I was, just, I was just thinking about this. This morning, right, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence. This is the promise of his word of that, and, and, and here we have to understand how this applies to, to recognize really the depth and power of his word in our lives, right? He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And when I, when I read that, all things, I think we, we think that it's somehow deserves some caveats. That he says all things, but he kind of means like most things or some things that pertain to life and godliness. But when he says all things, he says all things that pertain to life. So if it has anything to do with life, we have all everything we need. If it has anything to do with godliness, we have, it has everything we need. It, it, it makes me think of, um, of my, my kids and, and when I tell them they need to clean up their rooms, which is an ongoing, um, I've been picturing in my head exactly what it looked like when I left, and all of a sudden, there's the mess. But when I tell my kids to clean up their room, right, I'm like, okay, I want you to clean up everything on the floor. And they come back, and they're like, all right, I did it. I cleaned up all the Legos on the floor. It's like, wait, wait, I, no, I didn't say all the Legos on the floor. I said all everything on the floor. They said, whoa, wait, wait, does that mean my socks? Right, yeah, yes, it means your socks, right? Oh, wait, does that mean like the corner over here? And I, I feel like I have to speak slowly and say, if it falls under the category of everything and it's on the floor, then it needs to be picked up, right? At which point they get smart and say, well, my bed's on the floor, right? Okay. 
But I, but I, want, I, want, you to, I want you to hear God say this. He says, I've given you all things, not some things. Not, well, wait, what about this? But this is particularly difficult. But this is really, I mean, that's kind of like, okay, God messy. Like maybe, maybe this situation is Bible messy, but this other situation is really messy. He says, no, no, no. I've given you all things. All things that pertain to life and godliness through, he says, the knowledge of him. And this is where we see God's word not just as the, the end game. It isn't, this isn't just like the dictionary, the encyclopedia for all messes and problems. This is the means, his inspired word that he's given to us in order to allow us to know him. This is how, and it's through his word that we can know him. And, it's, and so he's revealed himself to us so that we might have everything we need for every mess in life. So God's given us his son. He's given us his spirit. He's given us and revealed to us his word. But that's not all. Those aren't, that's not all that He's given us, in fact, he's given us more and desires for us to utilize more than just his son and his spirit and his word. He's also given us his body. And when God has put in place a perfect design for dealing with the mess of the fallenness in this world, both in our hearts and in the world around us, he sent his son, he sent his spirit, he sent his word, and he sent his body. He sent his body as the means by which his word, empowered by his spirit, might deliver an ongoing over and over again the beautiful message of his son. And by his body, we don't mean the church as an organization. By his body, we don't mean that the church as a structure. By his body, I mean you and me. Every single one of us, every single Christian that's a part of the body of Christ, whether you've been a Christian for, for a day or a Christian for a century, you're a part of his body, and this is what God has given to us as the means of delivering his truth empowered by his spirit. Now, you might be thinking, wait, wait, okay, I'm glad he's brought his body. I'm glad he sent his body. I'm glad he sent all those gifted counselors and disciplers and, and mentors out there. But that's not me, right? That's not, that's, I, I'm not a part of that, right? There's, there's, there's some pastor you know or some missionary you know or some discipler you know or some small group leader you know, right? He's talking about them, right? My answer is no. Well, yes, he's talking about them, but he's also talking about you. He's talking about you, every single one of us. Every single Christian has the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them, which means every single Christian is called to be a part of this, this rescue mission God has in, in both redeeming the world to himself and building up this body. In, in Paul's letter to the, to the Ephesians, we read just a, a clear description of this design. Actually, a, a, just a beautiful picture of it. In Ephesians chapter 4, 
Starting with verse 11, he says, and he, he's talking about Christ, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Right? He's given leaders, he's saying God gave leaders to the church not to do the work of ministry. Like the leaders in the church aren't the ones we pay to do the work of ministry. Right? I mean, sometimes we can think about that in the church. They're the professionals, and so they do the work of ministry, and the rest of us just kind of support, and we, you know, bring out muffins, and, and we, um, you know, help pay their salary, and, you know, we set up chairs. And there's nothing wrong with setting up chairs and, and putting out muffins. We ought to be doing that, too. But you put, gave leaders to the church in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and the saints right, aren't just the super holy Christians. The, the saints aren't the, the Sunday school all-stars. Right? The saints are every single person who's been declared righteous in Christ. Which means every person who's received God's forgiveness is a saint. Every single one of us. Which means if you have lived your entire life in just abject sin and yesterday cried out to God asking for forgiveness and put your trust in Christ... You are forgiven, and you are a saint. And God gave leaders to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The, 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 the shepherds and teachers then, are, they're kind of like coaches, right? They, they put in, in place the, the training regimen. They, they help you understand the strategy, the way you fit into the plan. They, they, they give you what you need to succeed, but then they call the church, every Christian, to, to execute the play, to, to, to actually do the work on the field. And there's no bench warmers in the body of Christ. This is like, the body of Christ is like my freshman football team. I played one year of football in my life. No peewee, no, you know, I, you know chub. I, I, got to, I got to my freshman year in high school and was like, all my friends are doing it, I could try. And it, it was a horrible experience, but... Some of you are cool football stars, and I am jealous of you. But for me, I, I played the fifth quarter. You're like, wait, wait. For, for, for you non-sports people, football only has four quarters, right? This ends quarter. I played the fifth quarter. The fifth quarter was when all the kids who didn't play in the rest of the game from each team, like, got out there and ran some plays against each other. It was great. But the church isn't even like that. The church is, is, a, is a context where God has designed all of us to be on the field, engaged with one another, engaged with the work of the gospel and the work of building one another up all the time. He says, and, and so this is the ultimate purpose he's given us. I mean, he, he goes on in, in verse 12, he says, he's equipped the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure, the stature, and the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human, human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Right, here's the messy situation we naturally find ourselves in, right? We're tossed to and fro by the waves. We're, we're carried about by, by every wind of doctrine. We're carried about by craftiness and deceitful schemes, right? Every system that offers hope and future outside of God. In, in short, we naturally find ourselves in a mess. And God's design for dealing with this mess, he says, is he's going to build us up together into the full stature, the fullness of Christ. 
right? He, he, he says we are his hands and body who he wants to use his, and he wants to use us until, he's going to build us up until we attain the unity of the faith, until we attain the, the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God, until we attain as his body mature manhood, the measure and the stature and the fullness of Christ. He says he's building all of us together to become more and more and more like Jesus. So every person, every person in your life who's struggling with anxiety, he wants to draw them into his body, strengthen them, give them hope, and help make them more like Christ. Every person in your life who's battling with an addiction, he wants to draw them into his body, strengthen them in hope, give them self-control so that they may become more like Christ. Every person in your life who's been abused and physically, emotionally, sexually, spiritually, he wants to draw them into his body, show them deep empathy and comfort, give them hope, and help them become more like Christ. Every person in your life who's depressed and weighed down in our happiness-obsessed culture, he wants to draw them into his body, teach them the joy of his loving community, give them hope, and help them become more like Christ. And anybody, any realist here is going to say, that sounds great from a pulpit. But how? Like how, how is he actually going to do that in the real world with these real problems that, that, that are really significant? It says in verse 15, he goes on, Paul goes on, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's how God is going to deal with the mess and help us become more like Christ. Through, he, he says here, speaking the truth in love. Actually, in the original, there's only one word there. It's literally truthing. By truthing one another in love. It involves speaking to one another in love. It also involves, involves um, uh, showing and living out the truth towards one another in love. As, as Christians, we, we, we loved, and Paul started this, right? We love to turn nouns into verbs. <laughs> truthing one another in love. And a key component of how he's going to do this is when each part of the body, every joint with which it is equipped, when every single component, every single part, every single person, when it's working properly and they are engaged in loving and caring for others, he says, work together to build the body up so that it, the body builds itself up in love. I think about just the community group of people that, that meet in my home every Friday night. Right? There's, there's, there's guys that are working Lots and lots of hours, more hours than they would ever like to because of job situations or, or bosses and trying to raise multiple kids at the same time. And they can say, you know what? That's just not my job. That's just not my role. But you know what? But they don't. They say, no, no, this is a part of what I'm called to. There's, there's a, a homeschool mom 
who says, you know what, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with my responsibilities at home, but both I'm supposed to be truthing one another in love in my home and to my kids, but also truthing one another in the body and one another around. We have women with careers in our church who are, who are trying to figure out how to balance all of life together and recognize that this is a calling for them as well, whether they're married or single, young or old, been a Christian for uh, decades or been a Christian for days. Every single one of us, God has a plan for every single one of us to use every single one of us for his glory in one another's lives, speaking the truth in love, truthing one another in love. I think it begs the question, so wait, like, what do you call that kind of ministry? I think sometimes we call that kind of ministry counseling. And, and if I called it counseling, like 90% of you would be like, oh, okay, that's not my ministry. <laughs> sometimes we call it discipleship, right? And, and maybe when I say discipleship, you think, oh, okay, that thing where we like go through a curriculum and then we get done and you're a disciple. Right? Or, or sometimes people call it mentoring. Right? Or sometimes people just call it Christian friendship. You, you can call it whatever you want, but, this, but Scripture says engaging with one another together in, our, in deep personal relationships is a calling for every single one of us Christians. It, because of all the different labels, uh, I, I like to call it just gospel care. Just caring for one another with the truth and out of the motivation of the gospel. And as I've studied God's word and ministered to people over the years, I've come to try to develop just a, a simple definition for what are we talking about here? What, what, is, what, is, what does scripture call us to? And this isn't inspired, but it's just a, a, hopefully a helpful summary. And it's in, it's in your notes. Gospel care is this. Gospel care is the God-exalting, grace-saturated act of loving another person through patiently knowing, sacrificially serving, truthfully speaking, and consistently applying the gospel in order to help them become more like Jesus. So gospel care is the, is, is the God-exalting, grace-saturated act, first, of loving one another. And as we love one another, we do so by patiently knowing them, by sacrificially serving them, by speaking truth to them, and by consistently applying the gospel, all in order to help them become more like Jesus. And this is really a summary of what we're gonna spend the next seven sessions on. Unpacking what does it mean? How do we love one another in this way? How, how, do, we, how do we come to know one another deeply? How, do we, how are we called to serve one another? What are we called to speak to one another? And, and how do we consistently apply the gospel to one another's hearts? But first... But before we dive into all of that, we need to take a step back and look at the fact that what we're called to in gospel care isn't some scripted science. It's not something that we can walk through in seven sessions and give you seven steps and then you go take the seven steps and you check them off. In fact, gospel care is much more of an art. It's an improvisational art that each one of us is called to, and, and that's what we're going to explore in, in our second session. And like Anne-Marie said, we're going to do these first couple of sessions back to back. So this, this is kind of like when you're watching Netflix, and, it's, and like the next video starts playing just automatically, and you're like, oh, well, I guess I may as well. 
right? I, I, I know, you have self-control, you don't do that, right? <laughs> this, uh, this, this is just the, the, the automatic play the next episode. So we'll, um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll take a break after our, after our, after our second episode. But in, in, our, in our second, um, in our second session, we're gonna, we're gonna look at how, how this gospel care, how this one another ministry to one another is actually more of an art. Because I think engaging in gospel care, I think engaging in one another ministry um, can be a lot like praying and reading your Bible in the Christian life, right? Those are those things that you're like, oh, I, I know I should do that, and when I do it, it's amazing, but man, like, stuff just seems to keep getting in the way, right? Like, like why do I, you know, why don't I just constantly engage in the things that I know God has called me to engage in. And, and, and I think it, it begs the question, what, what is it that holds you back from engaging deeply with other Christians in gospel care? Well, what holds you back from going deep with others and stepping into their mess? Sometimes I think it's just the mess, right? You're like, you know what, my, my life feels a little bit less messy at the moment, and that's more messy and so that's uncomfortable. I, I'd rather not. I, I think sometimes it's the fact that, that we just feel busy, right? I mean, I, it, it, I don't know about you, but anytime I talk to somebody, whether it's on a Sunday morning at church, when I run into somebody at the store, whenever, whenever um, even we just sit down to have a conversation, if you ask how someone's doing, the answer used to be good, now it's busy, Right? How, how are you doing? I'm busy. Right? How are you doing? Oh, life's crazy. Right? And, and, and that's okay. Like, there's nothing necessarily wrong with being busy. The question, though, is what are we busy doing? Right? We, we ought to be engaged, but are we busy in the things that God calls us to, and how are we being faithful to all the different various calls he gives us in our lives? I think sometimes the things that hold us back from, from gospel care is we just don't feel equipped. Right? You don't feel like I, I have the tools. I, I, don't, I don't know where to start. Maybe you've just never thought of yourself as a people person. Right? Sometimes you're like, you know, there's people, there's people that are engaged deeply with other people, and I'm just not one of those people. Right? There's, there's people who can talk deeply and, and want to know about people's feelings. I'm just not one of those people. So I just don't do that. There's all sorts of, of excuses we use, and we could look at all of them, but actually... The, the one, I think, most significant thing that holds us back from gospel care, and actually, I think maybe the underlying motive, underneath and, and, and behind so much of our avoidance of deep relationships with people, is, is simply a lack of confidence. I think, actually, most people in the church are far more equipped than they realize speak truth into the lives of one another. And that the problem isn't that they don't know enough truth, the problem isn't that they, that they don't know um, the, the things to do or the things to say. In fact, the problem is they just feel like they don't know where to start. Have you ever felt that way? Right, like, like, like I just don't even know where to start. So I'm just gonna nod 
I'm going to say, that's too bad. I'm going to get a couple of platitudes out, and then I'm going to go on my way. <laughs> because I don't know how to deeply engage. And I, and I actually, I think that one of the reasons we don't know where to start, I think one of the reasons we don't have confidence is because we tend to think that what is needed is more of a science. It's more of, a, of the working out of a detailed script, and we just don't know the script, right? I mean, maybe if I went to Bible college, I would have learned the script, right? Maybe if I went to seminary, I would have learned the script. Right? And this is why we look and we're like, oh, pastors, missionaries, like, like longtime disciplers, they're the ones who are supposed to be doing interpersonal ministry. They're the ones who are supposed to be, because they somehow got trained and learned the script. Or some of you are like, I don't know where to start. I don't know what the script is. So I'm gonna go to an IBCD training because at least there they'll give me the script. And then I'll know, I'll know what to do. I'll know where to go. I'll know how to, how to start. I'll know, wh I'll know what to say. You're going to be woefully disappointed today. <laughs> um, but hopefully, um, my heart is that together we're going to discover something even better. Well, one of the most common questions I get um, whether it's at trainings like this or even just as a part of my own church from the people um, that I shepherd is, is people come up and they say, what, here's a situation, what should I say to this person? Right? What do I say to a person when they fill in the blank? Right? I, I, I have my, my roommate keeps da-da-da-da-da, like where do I start with them? What do I say? How do I? Because they're, they're, looking, they're looking for a script. We're all looking for a script, right? We're looking for that magic thing to say that makes everything better. Or at least the magic thing to say that alleviates our guilt from not being able to do anything, right? Or at least the magic thing to say that makes us look spiritual and impressive, where maybe it doesn't fix it, but at least now they feel better about us. And they think of us as a good friend, because we, didn't, we couldn't fix everything, but we knew the right thing to say. Or if, we didn't, if it's not the thing to say, we want the magic Bible verse, right? I mean, have you ever done this? Have you ever, like, have you, have you ever Googled, like, Bible verses for depression? You ever Googled Bible verses for addiction? You ever Googled Bible verses for, you know, um, communication problems in marriage. If you've ever Googled Bible verses four, it's because you're looking for this, right? You're, like, you're grasping at straws, and Google's at least like giving you a lifeline. <laughs> right, right? Maybe, I can, maybe I can find this. Maybe I can, I, I can identify just the magic words that can, that can alleviate the pressure, that, that can allow me to feel like I've done something worthwhile in this relationship. See, we, we don't like the responsibility of having to figure it out ourselves. We don't like the responsibility of having to sit there and, 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 and before the Lord ask, God, what should I say? What should I do? We, we, we don't like the responsibility of having to rely on just our biblical knowledge that we've gained that seems woefully insufficient for the huge messes of life. We want there to be a script. But as I mentioned, gospel care is the God-exalting, grace-saturated act of loving another person through patient knowing, sacrificially serving, truthfully speaking, and consistently applying to the gospel in order to help them become more like Jesus 
but there's no script. One of the other questions, if it's not about you know, a specific situation, it, it's, it's what, what are your go-to passages in counseling? Right? People ask, or what are your go-to passages in relationships when things get messy? Well, what are your go-to passages that you, you know, tend to always use in ministering to others? And I'll tell you, I mean, there, there are some passages that I am familiar with, that I love, and that I talk with um, various different people in all sorts of different contexts about. You're like, what are those? What are they? But if I'm being honest, the most common Bible verses that I use when talking with others, talking with friends, whether it's in, a, um, in my pastoral role or just in my role as a friend, the most common passages I text to other people, right? I mean, I mean that, that's one of the biggest ways we deal with messes, right? Sometimes it's with conversations, sometimes it's over coffee, sometimes it's sitting down formally, sometimes it's just via text. Oftentimes it's just via text or an email. And the most common Bible verses I use are whatever I read that morning. It actually is, and, and I used to be embarrassed about that. I used to like, I used to sit down with people, you know, we'd be sitting over coffee, and I'd be like, oh, I have a verse that would be shared, and they're like, oh my gosh, that's the perfect verse, it so applies, and I'm like, Whew, barely made it, <laughs> right? Like, I felt like a teacher who was like studying the chapter, just one chapter ahead, just trying to keep ahead of my students, right? And for years, for years in ministry, even for years as a pastor, I was just embarrassed that I kept being dependent on just the most recent knowledge I'd gotten to hand to people. Until I realized <laughs> there was nothing to be embarrassed about. That was actually how the Spirit of God loves to work. He loves to orchestrate life together in a way in which he plants a, 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 a verse or a passage in my path and my Bible reading plan one morning because he knows someone else in my life needs it that afternoon. And he does it over and over and over again, which, which shows us that actually I think one of the most, especially if there's no script, if God's calling us to interact in an improvisational way with one another, then the most important thing we can do isn't learning a script and learning and getting a, a collection of key Bible verses. The most important thing we can do is maintain a, a close and intimate relationship with the Lord ourselves because out of that will come flowing and pouring truth that, that is exactly what those around us need. In this way, I, I think of gospel care, I like to compare gospel care to jazz. I, I, don't, I don't know if, jazz is kind of a love it or hate it thing. But I love jazz. And, and jazz, while, while musicians have struggled for decades to try to define jazz, and I can't try to just define it, there is general consensus that, that jazz tends to have two, two kind of commonalities. There's two things that, that um, characterize jazz. One is swing, right? I don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. But the other is improvisation. What's so unique about jazz is, is it, it's improvisation. And while I'm not a great musician myself, I love listening to jazz. I especially love listening to live jazz. Uh, there, there was actually a, I, I took my wife out for um, a, our anniversary a few years ago, and, you know, I looked up on Yelp, 
jazz clubs, just trying to find somewhere you know, for us to go and listen to live music. The problem was our anniversary fell on a Tuesday, and, and my wife loves celebrating things on the date. I don't know if any of you guys are like that. Like, if it's Tuesday, we're going out Tuesday. Like, none, none of this, like, the Saturday before or the Friday after stuff. No, no, no. It's, it, it's Tuesday. The anniversary's on Tuesday. So we went out on, on, on Tuesday, and we went to this, this jazz club, and, or it was like a restaurant, like jazz restaurant, and it was like Tuesday, one step above karaoke night. <laughs> I'd heard great things about this place, but I, and then I went back on Yelp, and I was like, oh, those are all Friday and Saturday night comments. And so, and it was basically like, like karaoke sung in a jazzy style. That's not what I'm talking about. All right, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. But, but actually, I think that's what you sound like when you try to search for a script. Let me just sing along to what it's, I think it's supposed to sound like. The Lord's after something far more beautiful than that. The next year, I made up for it. The next year, I was like, no, we're going to do this right. And we, we found this little spot in little Tokyo in L.A. And it was like in this like, two-storied like, strip mall, kind of like outdoor mall. And every store in the place was closed. Like, it, was, it was late at night. Everything was closed. Back in this like, hidden corner, where we were like, where are we going? You open up, and there was this just beautiful jazz club. And performing that night, there were, there was, there, it was just two people just a guitarist and a vocalist. But they were two of the most talented musicians I've ever seen live. And what I love about jazz was what they did that evening, they didn't perform. They didn't bring out their sheet music, set it up, and then play all the notes on the sheet. They, what, what happened that night wasn't a performance, it was an experience. They played notes that were based on everything they knew, kind of coming together, flowing and riffing off of one another. But the notes they played that night weren't notes, weren't, weren't a combination of notes they'd ever played before. They weren't the exact combination of notes they would ever play before. And they weren't the exact combination of notes they were ever going to play again. Like there was, they, they improved that evening based on and one another in a way that what you heard was completely unique. And the truth is, Gospel care is a lot more like that. I can't tell you what to say tonight when your child or your parent or your friend texts you with an emergency. I can't tell you what you should write. And what you're going to write is different than what somebody else in this room is going to write. What you might write is something is different than what I might write. But there's a reason they're not texting me, they're texting you. Because God wants to use you with your knowledge of them, with your knowledge of God, with your knowledge of Scripture, in that moment to speak something unique, completely unique. And the reason we're called to this is because this is the type of ministry that we see described all over Scripture, right? Jesus didn't use a script. I mean, if anybody was going to use a script, right? He knows exactly the perfect thing to say, and if there was one perfect thing to say that if you just repeated it over and over and over again to multiple people, like, he would have done it, but he didn't. Just think about Jesus' interaction with the, the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. Right? In his interaction with her, he improvises on the fact that they're at a well, that she offers him water, and he reveals to her that he is the living water. 
He improvises based on his knowledge that she's had multiple husbands to ask for her to bring his husband. Now, of course, we're gonna have to ask a few more questions than Jesus has to ask to get that kind of information, right? But, but he, he, asked, he didn't ask her because that was his go-to line. Jesus' go-to line wasn't, bring me your husband, right? He asked it because it was the right question to ask in that moment for that person. He, he improvised based on her question of, of, of whether they should worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. It's in that context, in response to her question, that he told her that they would worship in spirit and in truth. And through his improvisation, through the, 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 the unique conversation that they had, Jesus gently led her to recognize that he was the Messiah, that he was the answer to her greatest needs, that he offered the fulfillment she'd been looking for her entire life. Again, but he didn't do it by reciting some script. He, he didn't do it by simply walking up and saying, hello, I'm Jesus, I'm the Messiah. Right? He didn't introduce himself that way. Every, time, every once in a while he might have. But for her, it was unique. Or think about Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, just the chapter before. I mean, you can just, if you're reading John chapter 3 and chapter 4, you can see the contrast here. Jesus didn't tell Nicodemus to go get his wife. Jesus didn't wait to be offered a glass of water or bring out some water saying, would you like some water? Guess what? I have living water. Right? He didn't, like, set it up so that he could use his line which is, I'm afraid, but sometimes even what our personal ministry feels like, right? Like, I'm just waiting for, oh, here it is. Now I can say it. No, he knew in his interaction with, with, with Nicodemus that the woman at the well was the ultimate outsider, but Nicodemus was the ultimate insider. He, he knew that for Nicodemus, the coming of the kingdom of God was at the forefront of his mind. He knew that for Nicodemus, he was trying to make sense. He kept seeing all these miracles, and he believed the miracles, but he was trying to make sense of it all. How does this work? Because Jesus didn't look like the Messiah they were expecting. How does this all come together? But instead of simply rejoicing in Nicodemus's, you know, uh, simple faith in the miracles that he'd seen, Jesus, what, Jesus knew that what Nicodemus needed was that Nicodemus needed to go deeper. And so he told him essentially, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus, with his like trying to put all the pieces of the puzzle together and trying to figure it out, as soon as Jesus said you need to be born again, Nicodemus tried to figure it out. He's like, wait, wait, so do we enter into our mother's womb again? Like, how does that work? Right? I mean, you can see just his analytical brain trying to, trying to put this all together. But Jesus wanted Nicodemus to understand the reality of the kingdom of God and that there was a much more radical call than Nicodemus was even prepared for. In fact, Jesus wanted to completely upend Nicodemus' whole worldview, his whole religious worldview in a way that, that was centered on him. And it's in the deliverance of this radical message that Jesus famously told Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Right? If any verses, if any verse is going to become a script, shouldn't it be John 3.16? But Jesus didn't turn that into a script either. As far as it was recorded in Scripture, that, that, that's the only time he's ever recorded saying it. Not only that, he, th- th- this idea, I mean, this, I, this concept with Nicodemus, that Nicodemus had to be born again, seems like a really fundamental, huge concept. But Jesus didn't, like, walk around after that saying, you know what, that is, that's it, that's the key. You need to be born again. You need to be born again. You need to be born again. You need, right? He told Nicodemus he needed to be born again because he knew at that moment that's what Nicodemus needed. Of course, the obvious tension is, right, we're not Jesus, <laughs> and we don't have all of his knowledge. But that doesn't mean that he's not called us forward into to improvising more and more and more like him. Thankfully, God doesn't ask us to simply improvise on our own. He doesn't simply ask us to say, like, okay, just, you'll know what to say, just go do it. But he gives us his spirit, and he gives us his word. He hasn't left us alone, but he's given us himself even more intimately than if Jesus were here telling us what to do. You and I tend to think, I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to assume about you, but I, I'm going to say that if we, could, if we could have the choice, Jesus teaching this seminar would be best. Right? Like, if Jesus were here to teach the seminar, I think we'd take that. I think we'd take that over the current situation, right? Given all the factors of life right now, we'd say, you know what, if I could just switch things, I think Jesus teaching the seminar would be best. But what Jesus has said to us is, you know what, me teaching the seminar, me walking with you, me living in your home isn't near as impactful or intimate of a relationship as what I've given you in my spirit. Jesus told his disciples, I, I, I need to leave because I'm going to send you something better. Something better than me teaching a seminar. Something better than me walking with you every day. Something better than you seeing me walk and make decisions and learning from me. In fact, I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to give you my spirit. John 14, right, says, these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. There's that phrase again. All things, not some things, not a few things, not the, all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. When God calls us to improvise, he, does, he doesn't leave us to flounder on our own. He promises to bring to our mind what we've been taught. He bring, promises to bring to our mind what we've been taught as we minister to and care for others. When God calls you to improvise, to, to step into messy relationships where you feel like you don't know what to say, he promises to bring to your remembrance what he's taught you. Don't underestimate the power of the spirit of God dwelling inside of you. But just because the Spirit of God is here and dwelling inside of us and is going to bring to remembrance everything, it doesn't mean that he's going to just like zap truth into our brains. Right? This isn't some mystical experience where we're like, okay, you know, I'll, just, I'll just start talking and trust that whatever I say, God, you're doing it. That's a bad idea. 
right? That's social media. In person, in real life, depending on the Spirit means him teaching us everything he's given us in his word, internalizing everything he's given us in his word, and bringing to our remembrance what we have at other times in our lives, at other times in our day, learned from his word. So he hasn't just given his spirit, he's also revealed, like I mentioned before, revealed his word. When a pianist is asked to, um, to improvise, right, they, they improvise on all 88 keys, but they're limited by those 88 keys, in a sense. What they're supposed to play is those 88 keys. They're not supposed to improvise on their bandmates' like sock. Right? They're not supposed to improvise on their hat. They're not supposed to like improvise you know, on their lunch sack next to them. Right? I mean, jazz can get a little bit far out there, but run, run with the, the analogy with me. Right? A, a pianist is given 88 keys to play. And just like a piano gives a jazz pianist the keys to choose from, God's word gives us the content that we are called to choose from. He says, here, here is the truth that you can speak, life-giving truth to one another. And there's no script, there's not just one thing you say in every different situation, but this is the truth that people need in the midst of the mess. This is why Timothy writes in his second letter, right, famously, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, right, dealing with the messes. He says, and for training in righteousness, the man of God, the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I, I love that phrase, right, training in righteousness. It, right, he's essentially saying helping helping one another become more like Jesus. And this training in righteousness, this helping one become more like Jesus is the ultimate goal of our gospel care of one another. It's the ultimate goal of our lives to glorify God by becoming more and more like him and by helping one another become more like him. And training in righteousness is what he's given us his word for. The psalmist just reflects on this, the, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. This is God's word and the power of his word. And we sell his word short when we look for a script or look for a key passage that just we can like repeat to everyone in every moment. He, he wants us to internalize his truth, to, to through his truth know him and through that deep and intimate knowledge of him, no matter, no matter how long it, it's been, speak forth from that, live from that in a way that blesses others, that loves them, that helps them to become more like Jesus. But there's one last piece of the, the jazz analogy, and, and every analogy falls apart eventually and this one's about to, but before we get there, there is one last piece that I think is, is helpful. In jazz, a musician has the entire range of notes on their instrument to play, like I mentioned. 
Right? A vocalist has the entire range of their voice. They can, they, they can sing as high as they physically are able or as low as, as they're physically able. But good jazz isn't just random notes played in random orders. Right? There's a difference between jazz and my seven-year-old pounding on the piano. Right? Some of you are like, I don't know. <laughs> but some of you love jazz and you know there's a huge difference. There is a huge difference. Because in jazz, and any improv improvisational solo is always meant to complement, is always meant to dance around, and is always meant to return to the melody. There is an underlying melody that the band is playing. There's an underlying melody of the song that is, that, that is being um, performed that the improvisation always returns to, always complements, and it is always most fundamentally based on. And in the same way, gospel care isn't just a bunch of random improvisational thoughts. It's not just like, here, let me like, play Bible roulette and give you a verse for the day and you know, that'll work. It's not just whatever comes to my mind. It's not just random notes played. But it's words and actions that are a part of a larger melody, that are, that are always returning to this underlying melody. And that melody is the call to love. God's love for us is what changes everything. The greatest commandment, first and greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the melody that all of our gospel care pours from and that everything complements and returns to. And so, as we've seen in these first couple of sessions, gospel care is, number one, something you're called to, and number two, something that doesn't have a script. And in the third session, we're going to look at the fact that ultimately it's something that reflects and pours out of the foundational melody of love. Now, I don't know about you, but the thought of all of that, even the thought of loving others, still can leave us intimidated, right? It still can leave us scared. It can lead us nervous. It's, it's almost like a soloist stage fright, right? It leaves us going, okay, but I don't know what to say, right? I, I, I don't actually know what to do. Like, that, that sounds great, but like, where do I start? And so I, I, want, I want to, as we, as we get started, and as we dig into this, and I think this is actually really important. And the pace of this is important because some of you are like chomping at the bit. You're like, well, let's get to like some of the practical things. But I, I want you to know every time I sit down with a friend who's struggling, every time a conversation begins where a new mess is laid out, every time I get a text out of the blue and the mess is poured out again, the exact same thing always comes to my mind. And it's simply this. I have no idea what to say to you. Because the truth is, I don't. Yet. But that's what gospel care is for. To take the time 
to love the person, to care for them, to get to know them as we're going to explore enough until we do actually have something to say, until we do know what to do. And that whole call, everything, all of that begins within that moment, simply striving to love them. Copyright 2019, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.